I gently open the polyethylene bag that Tinker's Number 1 has been protected in since I purchased it at my comic book store. I slide it out of the bag and into my hands. I ask myself, are my hands clean? I better wash them again, just in case. I'm reading a near-mint first-print copy of Tinker's Number 1. There were no not-first-prints available on the day that this came out, so I only have this first-print copy to read. Every time I open the book, every time I turn the page, there's a chance that I will damage this pristine copy of Tinker's. I gently rest the book on an acid-free cardboard backing board and put it in my hand. I place another acid-free backing board against the front cover, so as I gently open the book, it will be supported by these pieces of cardboard and will not make contact with my greasy, acidic hands. Finally, I am reading Tankers Number 1, a comic book about men and women in gigantic mecha tanks killing dinosaurs. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Some get bullets, some get flames. One gets crushed and they all get maimed. One takes a chainsaw to the head. No matter what, they will all be dead. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. All right, so Tankers number one is in my hand. And once again, this is another beautiful book put out by Bad Idea. When I hold this thing, it is once again the thick, thick cardstock. I have not seen cardstock on a cover this thick since the die-cut cover of Wolverine issue 50 from my childhood. This thing is hefty and beautiful and very rigid. It has those spot glosses on the cover once again, just like ENIAC number one did. And my goodness, what a delight it is. This is Overthinking the Bad. My name is Sean, and I am going to be talking about Tankers number one in this episode. Before I get to that, though, it's time for a little creator roll call. This is written by Robert Scritty Venditti, with art by Juan Jose the Ripper Reap. Colors are by Andrew Dino Gore Dollhouse. And letters are by Dave, the pointy end, sharp. It took me a few days to figure out what I wanted to say in this episode and how I wanted to talk about Tankers Number 1. When I first read it, it seemed on the surface to be a book about abandoned mercenaries in giant mecha tanks killing dinosaurs. And I didn't really know what much more to say about it other than that. When I really dived into the book again, though, and really read it and thought about it, it still appeared to just be a book about a bunch of mercenaries in giant mecha tanks killing dinosaurs. And I think that is what this book is. This book tells us what it is from the very beginning. It took about a page and a half to understand that this is a book with a ridiculous premise that is going to play it straight. And that was very apparent when, on the second page of the book, the CEO of the company explains that his grand plan to save the company is time travel. He's meant with blank stares, 
but then, in all seriousness, goes on to explain his plan. And at that moment, I understood, okay, this is going to be a preposterous book, but it's going to be played straight and will probably be a good book to just hop on and enjoy the ride for. In a way, this book seems like it came about how childhood play storylines would come about. When, uh, as a child, I mixed and matched my toys together so that I would have my dinosaurs fighting my G.I. Joes or fighting my Transformers or all living in a Lego palace together. That type of mashup is very much a relic of my childhood, as I'm sure it is many others. And this book seems to be, in a way, very much born of that idea of just mashing cool things together and seeing what happens. By comparison, this does not appear to be a story constructed by thinking about what a CEO of an oil company would do when faced with the prospect of declining oil reserves and seeing that their legacy, that the company that they had built was set to decline, was set to fade away, was set to just sail off into the sunset due to the uh, using up of this natural oil resource. Because I think that if that is the question that starts the story, it's a very different story. It doesn't involve time travel and comets and giant pulse cannons and mecha tanks and all sorts of dinosaurs and preposterous gigantic chainsaw arms on mecha warriors. The giant chainsaw arm, by the way, pretty awesome. So this is the way that I took the book. I didn't take it as a book that had a lot of hidden depth to it. I didn't look deeply into characters' motivations because they're all very clearly spelled out. We get in even an entire sequence that tells us the motivation of each one of these Tinker characters. We know the motivation of the CEO that is trying to have this mission be a success if anything, we don't really know the motivation of the scientists, but we can guess that they are motivated by science and being eggheads, and that's what they do. There aren't a lot of mysteries to the plot. It is very straightforward. Go back in time. Stop the comet from hitting the Earth so that it will take another 50 million years before it hits. Another 50 million years of dinosaurs means another 50 million years of fossil fuels. They get back and find out that something went wrong. And dinosaurs are still around. So that is really what this book is all about. There wasn't a lot of hidden depths to mine in this book. And I don't think that there is meant to be. We're not meant to think about what are the implications of time travel within this world. What would the existence of time travel in this world mean to everyone and everything else going on in this world? I don't think we're meant to think about what are the implications of having 50 more years of fossil fuels on this earth. We're not supposed to think of what would be the socioeconomic impacts. What are the global impacts that this would have on our world and our society? We're just really, I think, supposed to take this as, hey, here's this insane plot to make the business last a lot longer. Let's go do it and let's make sure they're armed to the teeth while doing it. So I thought that what I would do is to talk about these six tanker characters and a little bit about them, what we know about them, and recap what happens to them in this book. First of all is Sam Houston Reigns. He is the leader. 
he wants lands and riches. When he is asked for his reward for this mission, he wants a lot of land in Texas and a lot of longhorns to raise there. So he seems very much just motivated by that good Texas life. He leads the mission, establishes this safe zone once they go back in time into the late Cretaceous period. He fires a rocket at a Stegosaurus. He kills the Triceratops that gets through the perimeter, and he bags that Triceratops' head as a trophy. Next up is D. Diesel Roach. She likes her guns, and she wants fame. She wants to be gun famous also. She will get the cover of Guns and Ammo in addition to her 60 minutes. She's actually the first to fire into the prehistoric while they're on the modern timeline side of the time travel gate. She opens fire to make sure that there's nothing right in front of that door before going through it. She fires on an Alaphrosaurus and she gets on the back of an Ankylosaurus that is attacking one of her fellow tankers and she shoots it to death. She bags that Ankylosaurus tail as her trophy. She's also a vegetarian and does not take part in that great dino dinner that they have back in the prehistoric. Next up, Salvatore Patch Giacovani. He wants a team home in one piece, which is quite a noble goal. But I think that he really just wants to make sure that Diesel gets home in one piece because he has the hots for Diesel. After butchering one Triceratops, one gets through the perimeter, and that is the one that is then taken out by Houston, the team leader. He gets bitten by a T-Rex, and while in the T-Rex's mouth slash throat, he operates the chainsaw on his mecha to cut it in half. He bags a T-Rex's head as his trophy to take home, which is, I gotta say, Kind of the coolest trophy that any of them got. All right, next up is Mario Heat Seeker Packard. His mecha tank is armed to the teeth with a bunch of giant rockets, and he wants to press the nuclear bomb button next time we drop one. And interestingly, this may signify, is this a world where dropping nuclear bombs is a fairly regular thing? Just a side note for thought. I know, we weren't supposed to think about this book much, but I can't help it. When he shows up in the prehistoric, he shoots his rockets at some pterodactyls, and he gets attacked by an ankylosaurus, which Diesel then helps him out with and takes out. Mario seems to just like big, big explosions. It doesn't matter if it's a nuclear bomb, doesn't matter if it's a pulse cannon heating a meteor, making it skip across the sky. He just wants to see things go Boom. And speaking of boom, next up is Daniel Boom Boom Diaz. He wants to free Cuba from the communists. He's the one who shoots a hellfire missile into the prehistoric from the modern day through their time travel gate. He shows up with his flamethrower attachment on his mecha. He burns up some Camposagnathus and he shoots the knees off of a Brontosaurus. Last up is Eugene Goldilocks Goldfarb. He doesn't actually have a code name, so I called him that Goldilocks name because I think that's what Diesel refers to him as during uh, this battle. He wants to be a real tanker and have a real tanker name. He just wants to be one of the guys and to grow up and belong and finally be 
one of the big boys. He bags himself a Velociraptor, which is pretty pathetic when compared with the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Triceratops that some of the others got. He tries to get a call sign of Raptor, but the poor kid just doesn't know how it works and is probably going to just get something much more embarrassing. And he will probably hate it too because he wants a cool call name. I'm hoping for Goldilocks. That seems to make sense to me. So, hey, hey, let's do it. After setting up their perimeter in the prehistoric, they have a dino dinner, as I alluded to before, except for Diesel. She has her a vegetarian entree that she brought with her. Patch tries to hit on Diesel very unsuccessfully, I'll say. And once again, Eugene Goldfarb tries to get himself a cool call name, but it just doesn't really work out. After a quiet night, the eggheads get ready for the main event. They, they power up their pulse cannon and they fire it at this comet, making it skip over the sky like a throwing stone on water. Once again, Patch tries to hit on Diesel, this time by taking a picture. And then we return through the gate and they find out that they're not where they're supposed to be. They're in Metamoros, 10 miles south of the border between Texas and Mexico. It turns out that Egghead Jerry didn't account for the change in Earth's rotation due to that comet strike, which now didn't happen. It's a very bad mistake that he made, but he gets his punishment soon enough when he is stabbed through the chest by a dinosaur, and they find out that they are then surrounded by a number of dinosaurs, the likes of which we have never seen before. And this is a clear signifier somehow that Meteor did not come back and cause the extinction of the dinosaurs. They are now surrounded who knows how much ammunition they have left? Who knows how they're going to get back to base? Who knows even if there is a base to get back to? And with that, we end this issue of Tankers. Now, I will recite my favorite dinosaur poem from my childhood, Ankylosaurus, by Jack Perlutsky. Clankety, 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 clank. Ankylosaurus was built like a tank. Its hide was a fortress as sturdy as steel. It tended to be an inedible meal. It was armored in front. It was armored behind. There wasn't a thing on its minuscule mind. It waddled about on its four stubby legs, nibbling on plants with a mouthful of pegs. Ankylosaurus was best left alone. Its tail was a cudgel of gristle and bone. Clankety, 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 clank. Ankylosaurus was built like a tank. Next, I want to talk about five things that stood out to me in this book. And these are going to be five absurd things that I noticed in this book that I would like to discuss. Because while they were absurd, I think they are also absurdly fun. The first thing, they invented time travel. Somehow this R&D department of this oil company invented time travel. That itself is fairly preposterous. I don't think that most oil companies have R&D departments that are trying to unlock the mysteries of traveling through time. Second thing, they decide to do this with the time travel. Think about it. If you 
had time travel available to you. You could do anything. Is this the plan that you would come up with? It's very convoluted. Let's stop a meteor from striking Earth so that it will take 50 million more years before it strikes 50 million more years of dinosaurs alive, 50 million less years of evolution after that asteroid impact. This would have massive ramifications on the history of Earth, massive ramifications to the history of the development of all life on earth and thinking that it's just going to be a simple hey nothing could go wrong sort of plan that is fairly absurd and also deciding that this is the best way to make use of of time travel. Why not just go back in time and invest in the stock market in an account in your name? Get tons of money that way. It is frankly very, very absurd that this is the thing that they decided to do with time travel. Third thing, we see these tankers in a live fire exercise against these dinosaurs. We later see that these dinosaurs that they're firing on are just gigantic models of dinosaurs on these moving platforms with tank treads. So they built these gigantic taint tread dinosaur traveling platforms just to make these live fire exercises possible for all these tankers it is a huge amount of money and effort for this very specific very very specific type of a private army that they are developing that leads to the fourth thing they have a private army of mech warriors like of all the ways that somebody could go back in time and create a defensive perimeter against dinosaurs while shooting up a plasma cannon, they choose gigantic mech warriors. These things are, frankly, kind of absurd and a silly choice. Why not just use tanks? They seem like just good old-fashioned Abrams tanks would be much more efficient. I doubt these things were much cheaper. These things look very expensive, very complicated, and also very open. When Patch gets swallowed by that Tyrannosaurus Rex, he is very lucky that one of those teeth did not puncture his skin. Didn't they ever watch Jurassic Park and see what happened to Newman with that little dinosaur spit in his face and blinded him? These tankers leave these operators completely unprotected against any of these big dangers that could come at them in prehistoric times. Very, very, not very forward thinking. All right, the fifth thing. Speaking of all these tankers, the mission is explained in this briefing room that is a big round chamber with gigantic posters of all these tankers. They just have this room somewhere in this company that is a glorified chamber dedicated to these tankers with these gigantic posters showing off all of the members of this team with their code names. It is very, very absurd when you look at it. It looks great and is a visual storytelling mechanism. It's fantastic to see these giant posters, but also when you think about it in reality, quite strange. And all these things may seem like nitpicks, and I don't mean them to be nitpicks. I really enjoyed all these things. Because once again, 
the way I'm enjoying this book is just as a fun adventure based on an absurd premise. And this allows me to see really, really fun, cool things, which is essentially Gigantamecha Warriors fighting and killing dinosaurs. And I have absolutely no qualms against the silliness of any of these things because really all these things are a fun excuse to get the entertainment in my eyes. So next up, I have Professor Furtberger with me to talk about some of the scientific items in this book. And Professor Furtberger is a professor of both theoretical physics and paleontology, which makes him an ideal person to talk about both the uh, time travel and other interesting physics questions presented in this book, as well as some of the prehistoric information that we see in this book. So welcome to the show, Professor Furtberger. Oh, yes. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So, Professor, first thing I wanted to ask you about is the time travel in that we see in this book. Is it realistic? Is it feasible? Oh, well, you see, first I'd like to premise this by saying that time travel actually is not real outside of a laboratory setting and with fundamental particle physics. You say outside of a lab with fundamental particle physics, so it is possible, is what you're saying? Well, some studies have shown that uh, time travel may be possible in under limited circumstances for subatomic particles. Some have been seen to seemingly be traveling back in time when you consider traveling back in time being traveling with reverse entropy. Okay, well, uh, that's actually uh, kind of confusing. I don't know what you said there. Yes, well, you see, entropy is a measure of the order or disorder in the uh, universe and in any particular system. And so when an item happens, which happens to have reverse entropy, it means that it is going from a state of order to the... Professor, if I may, I I'd like to ask a, a different question, though the particle physics is interesting. I, I don't think it's quite the focus of uh, this show in particular. Oh, yes, okay, I see. So, aside from the fact that it's not possible, what can you say about, theoretically, this version of time travel? Oh, well, this version of time travel is one in which traveling back to the past allows people to change the past, and by changing the past, it then trickles outward into the future to fundamentally change our reality based on those changes in the past. This is contrary to other methods of time travel that have been theorized, such as the time travel proposed by Stephen Hawking, where he would propose that any time that 
where he proposed that if one were to travel back in time, they would find that they had always traveled back in time, and so it was impossible to change time. This looks at time as one continuous spectrum, where what has happened and what will happen will always be what has happened and what will happen. And if any time travel loops were introduced into the time stream, they would have always existed in that time stream. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it looks like, based off of what we see in this book, Tankers, that by going into the past and changing the trajectory of this uh, comet that was supposed to hit Earth, these tankers and the scientists that accompany them then changed the future events of Earth, which would override the reality of that timeline. So when they travel back to the future, they wouldn't be traveling to an alternate timeline. It would be that same timeline. However, it would just be altered based on the events that now happened in the past. Well, once again, uh, we are basing this analysis off of a comic book. And comic books, like time travel, are not real. But what you say does sound plausible. Alright, so uh, thank you for that explanation, Professor. I'd like to ask you more uh, about some of the stuff on the paleontology side. What can you tell us about this time in Earth's history that we see traveled back to in the pages of Tankers? Oh, yes. Well, thank you for asking. What we see in uh, this book is that the Tinkers and the accompanying scientists, which appear to be the true heroes of this story, they have traveled back to the Late Cretaceous Period. And the Late Cretaceous Period is when the Mesozoic Period in Earth's history ended altogether. And this occurred about 66 million years ago, plus or minus 0.025 million years ago. And what can you tell us about the comet strike that we see in this book that was averted? Well, so what we see depicted in this book and what was uh, caused to not happen in this book is known as the Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event. This was caused by a very large asteroid or meteor which made impact with Earth's surface. The estimates are that the asteroid or meteor was approximately 10 miles wide, and this created a gigantic impact explosion, which would have put a lot of material into the air, and thus causing the extinction of most of the plant life and animal life on Earth. And this includes the dinosaurs. This is currently the best theory that we have amongst paleontologists and scientists at large about the reason for the massive extinction of the dinosaurs. And what can you tell us about the dinosaurs that we see themselves and how they are depicted in this book? Does this look realistic to you? Well, oh, oh, that's an interesting question. You'll see... 
the time of this book, as I mentioned before, is the late Cretaceous period. And in the late Cretaceous period, not all of the dinosaurs that are shown in this book actually existed. It is true that this late Cretaceous period was the time when the Tyrannosaurus rex and the Triceratops and the Ankylosaurus roamed the Earth. However, the Stegosaurus was from the late Jurassic period, which was approximately 150 million years ago, as opposed to 66 million years ago. Also, I would like to point out that the sauropods, such as Diplodocus and Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus, lived approximately in the Jurassic period, which once again was about 150 million years ago, as opposed to 66 million years ago. By the late Cretaceous, the only sauropod that still existed was the titanosaurs, and I do not believe that any of those were depicted in this comic book. Uh, sauropod? Uh, yes, yeah, sauropod is the wider known name for all of the dinosaurs that look like a brontosaurus. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for that. Last of all, I want to talk about this plan and what type of device would be used to avert a meteor strike like this. Uh, is this realistic to shoot a plasma cannon or a particle cannon at a meteorite or a comet and have it skip across the sky to avert disaster? No, it is not. Oh, uh, can you elaborate? Well, any impact with enough force to change the trajectory of the comet or asteroid would have to have so much force that it would more likely shatter the comet or asteroid rather than just give it a gentle nudge to allow it to have a different trajectory. It is much more likely that the comet or asteroid would have exploded upon impact and then fell to Earth as much smaller, tinier chunks and fragments of the meteor or asteroid, which would likely burn up in the Earth or cause much smaller impacts in the Earth, probably averting this mass extinction event. So you're saying that giant cannons that give huge meteors just a gentle nudge are fairly unlikely? Well, fairly unlikely in actual reality, but as we can see in this comic book, not unlikely. All right, last of all, I'd like you to take a look at the page when the tankers and the team of scientists return to the modern day. They are surrounded by what appears to be a number of dinosaurs. Can you take a look at this and let us know what kind of dinosaurs these are? Hmm, yes. Well, let me look. I'll... Hmm. These appear to be... Hmm. Well, these appear... Hmm. These appear to be dragons. All right, Professor Furtberger, thank you for joining us on this show. It is a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for sharing your expertise with us. All right, that was the final gong you heard, and so that means that it is time to wrap up this episode. I really enjoyed reading this comic book, and I really enjoyed putting together this episode. I tried to come up with some silly things, as you can see, 
to honor this book in the way that I saw most appropriate. Now, I know you may be wondering about the backup feature featuring Abe Lincoln and his encounter with aliens that is completely out of this world. I think I'm going to be getting to these backup features at a later time and probably cover all of them in a single episode. So there will be a Tanker's backup feature episode at some point in the future. So thanks for tuning in. You can find the home base for these episodes at overthinkingcomics.com. That's my catch-all for all of the projects that I am working on. You can find me at Twitter at Bad Deacon. And make sure you subscribe to this show to never miss an episode. You can find it wherever you found this one, whether that's just on the webpage or on the Apple Podcasts or the Stitchers, the Spotify's, or whatever it is that you use to listen. All right, until next time, may the buttons always treat you well, and enjoy your comic books. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Some get bullets, some get flames. One gets crushed and they all get maimed. One takes a chainsaw to the head. No matter what, they will all be dead. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Tankers is a comic book about killing dinosaurs. Well, yes, that is correct.